Welcome to the Mothers on the Frontline podcast and our special series, Between Friends. Welcome back to Mothers on the Frontline conversation with friends. If you listened to the first part of our conversation, uh, you realized that it ended a little abruptly, and that was quite honestly due to technical difficulties and the fact that the three of us are still learning the medium. So we're we're technically, would you all say, podcast amateurs, um, <laughs> and and we're still earning our podcast stripes. So we apologize to those of you who have had a chance to listen to the first part of the conversation and we're like what happened um and and welcome you back and we welcome anybody else back who is new to the conversation um just to recap last week we were talking about punitive models and punitive disciplinary models um we talked a little bit about some of the ideological and uh, philosophical origins of how we understand discipline and in particular why we punish and why we tend to as a society as a culture lean into punishment um we talked a little bit about the belief systems that and that that is built on and then how that plays out in policies and structures. Um, and this goes, harkens all the way to things from conversations with that we're having with regard to policing to conversations that we have as a society and particularly those of us who have children with mental health challenges, conversations that we have within our own families with regard to parenting. Um, so we're going to pick up. And and one of the glaring questions, I think, um, in this conversation is, why don't these models work? We, we, we engage in a lot of punitive models that punish behaviors, and the belief is you punish the behavior, a person will modulate their behavior, and why don't they work? Tammy? Well, the fundamental assumption behind being able to punish a behavior and it changes it is that the behavior is a cognitive choice, right? As we talked about last time. And for a lot of our kids who have significant mental health issues, um, there may be something going on that's affecting their ability to choose that may not be apparent. And so it's not just simply a matter of preference, right? And that's why carrots and sticks don't always work. So I think about for instance, a meltdown, which a lot of people don't understand the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum. And there's a huge difference, right? A tantrum, I think we're all familiar with tantrums and adults (laughs) throw them too, (laughs) is when we want something and we're mad we didn't get it. And we think if we act out a certain way, we will be able to get it. So it's a kind of manipulation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, you, You cry in the grocery store, your parents could be embarrassed, so they're going to buy you the candy bar. Right. That's a tantrum. A meltdown is very different. And so there are different types of meltdowns. Um, so many of us, for instance, like if you have an autistic child, might have a sensory meltdown. And literally their neurological system sort of shuts down. Um, mm. The sensory input becomes overwhelmingly painful mm-hmm. so that one is loses the ability to communicate effectively, um, the self-regulation disappears because they're really dealing with intense physical pain, right? And so it can look like be bad behavior in a school setting, in a home setting where a child might be, you know, thrashing about or yelling or running or, or hitting their head. I mean, that that's sort of a self-soothing thing that can happen where they're hitting their head against the wall or something like that in any attempt to make the pain stop. Um, because it's meltdown isn't about getting anything, a carrot and stick isn't going to help at all. That right. child needs a, an opportunity and some help, if possible, or the patience to allow them to self-regulate. Yeah. That's, I think, um, a really important distinction. Um, and you're right between uh, uh, meltdowns. And we've all experienced, even as adults, We've experienced meltdowns and we've experienced Mm -hmm. if if any, I mean, any of us have and very few of us haven't 
moved into adulthood and haven't experienced some sort of, of trauma, loss of a job, divorce, mm-hmm. loss of a spouse or something where you are so emotionally overwhelmed and even like yeah. moving. That happened to me one time I had, we were moving and we were under such a deadline um, between getting out of one place, getting into another place and, and trying to coordinate all the things and the movers hadn't arrived. And I felt it. I started to feel sick. And I started to get hot and I was like, I'm going to pass out. And I was like yelling at everybody. I was just like, I need everything to stop. Everybody just get up, stop. And I was having a meltdown. I was having Mm -hmm. a, a complete overload of stress and a meltdown. So I think those distinctions and that distinction is really important to make with regard to what we're talking about, what doesn't work and nothing and never works for me. Um, and I don't know if either one of you have been in meltdown moments to have people tell you, you know, well, if you don't stop, this is going to happen to you. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, not very stop, helpful. the movers aren't <laughs> going to be able to come in the house. Right. Um, no, because you can't you, you and that moment need some time and some space. And even sometimes like you have to physically remove yourself to another room or another uh, you know another space because everything is just so overwhelming for you at that moment and you need to uh, self-regulate to cool down to just have some time to collect yourself and Tammy when you were talking about the the physical pain that um, say an autistic child might be feeling during um, uh, and a sensory overload moment I think a lot of people you know, probably have a hard time understanding that these things, the, the stimulus is, is painful. Um, you know, and I probably really didn't understand it very well until I developed intractable migraines. And so I think that's a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah. Talk more yeah, about that. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I, I can have a migraine triggered by outside stimulus, right? I could um, not be wearing my sunglasses and a big sun hat and the sun literally hits me in the eye at a particular angle and it will immediately trigger a migraine. Or I come into a situation um, where uh, there's a bunch of people in a room and it's very warm and there's the flickering overhead lights like in schools. um, Mm -hmm. And it will become really very overwhelming and painful and I will have to leave and vomit or there the smells in a room. Um, like my daughter one day was peeling a clementine, which normally I love and that smells super delicious, but I was in a, I was heading into a migraine episode and it smelled like a clementine bomb went off <laughs> and that's not pleasant, you know, and it's just so overwhelming that I have to physically leave a situation and I can't talk to you. Um, I, I cannot rationalize in those moments. Um, and I, I, I will likely be very snippy perhaps um yes not even perhaps yes um and and, and, in my in my emotions are very very raw that's the time where I could just not be able to um regulate those emotions where I I will just like cry for stupid well what I would consider to be stupid things they're not actually stupid but my feelings are just so raw and at the surface and there's no filter and I'm an right. adult and I can communicate those things eventually. Like my family knows, like we, we've developed this sort of uh, routine and communication system to be like, hey, mom's having an episode, you know, migraine episode, leave her be. And, you know, they kind of know what I need. But imagine if you're a child and you haven't developed those skills or maybe you might not even um you know, you might not ever be able to develop those skills depending on how profound uh, a neurodeficit might be. But that's what's going on for the child in that time. And when I'm like that, the last thing that's going to be helpful is if you yell at me 
And if I was a child, if you uh, physically punished me um, or shamed me in, in that time period, that would make it worse. And it wouldn't teach me how to handle that because it's going to come up over and over and over again, right? Like my brain I, is not going to be different. I, I well, I just wanted to, to 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 highlight a couple of things that that you said that I think are really important, um, because it is not just in the story you just told the fact that you're able to communicate because you're an adult and yeah. you know what's going on with your migraines and there are a lot of things that need to be teased out that I think really when we move away from more punitive reactions to behaviors to something different um, are telling in your story. Number one, you understand the process of what's happening with your migraines. And that didn't yeah. come about because you were just having migraines um, and you were experiencing it. it came about because you had access to and you were able to educate yourself and you gain skills in terms of mm -hmm. what is happening to me because i'm sure and and you know you and i have talked about this um thankfully since menopause perimenopause they're not bad but i'm also a migraine lifelong practically migraine sufferer and the first headaches i didn't know what was going on with me and i definitely it yeah. took a long time for me to understand the entire process of migraine aura and, you know, um, sensory diffusion and other things. Once yeah. I was educated with that, I was able then to talk to people about it and the people that I live with. But the second part about that, that is really important in your story is you also live in a family and you're with the system that understands that and is supportive yeah. and offers you yes. support and care when yeah. you are in a migraine episode which is yeah. not the case for people who have migraines, but it certainly yeah. Yeah. is less of a case, particularly when we're talking about mental health conditions um, yes. for, for, I'm for glad people suffering with um, mental health illness or mental I'm illness. Glad you, I'm glad you brought that up, Diane, because as I was listening to you, Angela, you said um, that you know, imagine if you're a child and that, you know, you could do this because you're an adult. And I sort of had the same thought. It's not really just because you're an adult that you can do it. It's because you're an adult that people listen to you. So yeah, it's, it's two things. One is that you're in a supportive environment. So that's a yeah. big assumption right there. Yeah. Many people aren't. Yeah. But it's also that you're believed and you're listened to. And I think yeah. that's one of the biggest challenges for Anyone with disabilities, but children with disabilities in particular, because children are not listened to. And okay. I'm, as a parent, guilty of that often. In fact, I, I had a moment with my son recently in, in his family, in family therapy. And, you know, we had a little argument right before therapy started. And then it started and the therapist asked what happened. And I started to explain and he just rolled his eyes. He goes, it doesn't matter what I'm going to say. They're just going to listen to whatever you say. Cause you're the grown up. And as the philosopher, I was like, Oh my God, he just explained, pardon me for being a philosopher, but we are in a hermeneutically unjust system. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's right. Yes. <laughs> and he's right. Yeah. You know, and, and, and so one of the things, cause, cause now you're right, Angela, that different people will have different abilities to articulate to others through language, what's going on with them. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I've watched my son who's now 17 and early on, I mean, he, he's always been a very articulate, uh, person with very high language skills, which is why diagnosis took forever in the first place. But you all know he is a talker, <laughs> unlike his <Yeah>. mom. Um, but, but he was able in school to say, from an early age, going back to third, fourth grade, and use therapeutic vocabulary that he learned in therapy. I am not well right now. I can't regulate myself. I need to go out of the cafeteria and I need to be in a quiet space. I'm not okay. And they wouldn't, yeah. they said, just sit down and wait till this is over. And he's like, I'm telling you, I cannot. Yes. And he right. would yeah. actually say, I cannot self-regulate. Just sit down. And then when he'd have a big explosion and they throw him in seclusion, they would just strain him in front of the whole school, pull him into a seclusion room 
And then act like there was no, the antecedent conditions was that he was attention seeking. It's like, no, the antecedent condition is you weren't listening to him. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, as you were talking, this goes back to what we, the, the, the previous conversation that we had with who is with regard to punitive systems, who is listened to and whose behavior and emotions and needs are listened to before you get to Uh the explosion really has to do with who we think are rational actors and rationally can describe and engage, right? And why the behaviors are happening. So adults are considered to be rational actors who, again, are trying to maximize your own utility. So therefore, if you're having a meltdown or if you're having a problem with your migraine or something like that, clearly anything that you're engaging in that is is opposite of that is either manipulative and and people who've had adults who have chronic health conditions have all experienced i shouldn't say all but many of us have experienced being accused of manipulating our condition to get out of work to get out of family engagements whatever and and so you because you're a rational actor you're soon to either be manipulative or you is something really must be wrong with you. So there is something and we can lean into what you say because you can talk about it and you are rational about it. Those of us children, um, people with um, traditionally, as we were talking in, in the last podcast, those of us who are considered to be less than full-fledged citizens or less than rational in, in sort of this rationality matrix are not um, vested with that same sort of, of authority in our own voices. And it falls heavily on children right now that children are not considered in any of their health care um, scenarios, particularly with regard to their mental health challenges, to be authorities in what's going on in their own systems. Yeah, a- a- absolutely. And that be that that aspect of being believed when something is going on with you is going to very often be the difference between um a successful outcome and an uh and a less than successful outcome or even a bad outcome like i fully understand that if i did not have a very supportive husband who, because of his own patient advocacy work, really understands sort of the things that I'm going through as best as he can without, you know, actually experiencing it himself, that even the course of my disease and treatment and my quality of life would be completely different. And if you're, and if you're a child who, um, if you're a child in that situation, um, whether it's a mental health or a physical health challenge, my goodness, you can understand where a child would then just sort of like lose it or even, you know, start throwing things or, you know, like react that way when people aren't listening and, and they need help, right? Yeah. And, and, and so if you go back to the content, I mean, the question of what works, why, do, why don't punitive yeah. models work? Whether you're talking about the school setting or parenting or policing or whatever, like, you know, we're talking about with punitive <laughs> models. Um, I think there's, a, there's a, f- a few things to change the way we frame it, right? So moving from this punitive model that's really focusing on uh, compliance, right? To moving to, I would say, if there's something going on that's problematic, right? A behavior in a classroom that you consider disruptive or not conducive to learning, um, a behavior that's disrupting the home, something that's happening in the community that concerns people's safety, so forth, right? The, so whatever it is, you have to start with, okay, what is what is happening, right? And to the, if this is happening over and over, like the first thing has to be asking and listening and believing, 
right? And then the next thing has to be curiosity. And, and that involves listening too, but being curious about what is going on. And when I listen to both of you tell your stories about migraine and things like that, you, you said something really important. At the beginning, you weren't sure what was going on. And that's true for our children too. Um, you know, yeah. they're, they're not only growing into themselves as children. Many of them are growing into whatever physical or mental health condition that they might have lifelong and figuring that out. And sometimes conditions arise, right? So if all of a sudden I become, you know, blind or deaf, I'm going to have to figure out all of the things that that means for me that I, I can't under, even understand right now, right? Like I might have time, be disoriented from time in a new way that I've never been before. I, with loss of sight, I would have to figure that out as I go, right? So we have to understand, be curious with the child, but also they start to l- learn what they need. Then we need to listen and believe them, right? And then the next step is collaborate with them. And I think that's where schools are particularly in a bad situation because we have made schools so rigid that teachers, despite their goodwill and best intentions do not have the power and agency to collaborate with students to change the environment enough because they have too many students. They have to teach to the test. They have all the, there are too many factors they actually have no control over. Uh, You know, I really like what you're talking about, Tammy, and, and parsing out this distinctions between like punitive and restorative models, not only just in how, we discipline children in our homes and schools, but also um, within the greater sort of justice system. And I think we also need to kind of figure out like why punitive systems don't work even a little bit more than what you were talking about. And when I think about punitive versus restorative, the two things in my mind are that punitive is about exerting external control Mm -hmm. where a restorative system is about teaching somebody how to have self-control, right? And that is why these two models don't uh, are are so different and why I believe that punitive models don't work. One, punitive models are very superficial. They aren't teaching a child about what's going on with them. It's not teaching them about how to self-correct. Um, it's about immediate compliance so that the external actors, whether it's the parent or the teacher or later on the police, feel good, right? It's about <laughs> you stopping a behavior that is making me feel uncomfortable or angry or frustrated or whatever, right? Um, but it doesn't help that person or that child solve the problem of what's going on with them. It doesn't teach them how to stop and recognize what their emotions might be and beyond the emotions, what the needs that are underlying those emotions. It doesn't teach them any skills on how like, hey, you know, the next time I'm feeling like this, what do I do to control myself or to have a better outcome in these situations? Because we have to teach our children who are having uh, self-regulatory issues that, you know what, it's not okay to throw your book at the teacher, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, yeah, and we we have to teach them ways to to do those things without it being something forced upon them. Um, I think... I, yeah, I, I just want to jump in there, Angela. I, I agree with what you're saying, but I would want to get rid of the language even of self-control because I think okay. what it is about is about determining, finding what are your needs that are not being met and how can yeah. you meet those needs and what help do you need to meet those needs as Ooh. opposed to moving the policing from external to internal. <laughs> right. It's really about helping you figure out why is this occurring? And how can you meet the needs that this undesirable affect is arising from? I, I'm going to push yeah. back. Does that make sense? Yeah, but I'm going okay, to push back. push back on that. Um, and because I, and I'm thinking about my own personal journey um, 
and this with respect to to parenting, particularly um, um, well, with parenting my children in general and parenting children who are are black children um, in a world where things are pushing on them, right? And and so the what moved me beyond parenting children who have mental health challenges, but just moved me in parenting African-American children into looking at more of self-regulatory and restorative principles in my parenting had to do with exactly what we're talking about in terms of self-regulation and understanding what's going on in your own body, how to regulate that, and understanding that you are not always going to be with systems and with people who are caring and who are even mm-hmm. responsive to your needs. You can say what you need, you can advocate, but you're not always going to get that response, right? And and the that's expectation right. yeah. that and that's where sometimes the tension and even in my own household with my husband and I is he thinks I'm setting the kids up for a life where they have an expectation that people are going to respond in a caring and curious way to their needs. And really what we're trying to do is, A, give them the tools to express what they need, express um, and, and, and create systems, right? So it's not just in, in terms of them expecting to have systems that respond in a caring way to their needs, but also become people who then pay that forward and are caring yeah. and responsive when they see other people in need. And, and one of the things that for my kids that I'm very proud of is that in their own experiences and somehow as we shifted our lens as a family we are not a family when we see people acting in ways that are strange or outside of of what we normally would expect who are even our fa- when we're out in public we always ask the question what does that person need i wonder if that person is having a really bad day my 10 year old witnessed a woman have extreme I would call it a privilege meltdown at um, (laughs) (laughs) before COVID at the store over you know the clerk not coming fast enough about her shoes and I was actually being very I was like really seriously look at this woman what is her problem and my son was like well you know she looks like she's having some regulatory issues, mom. And she's probably having <laughs> like, this is the end of whatever is happening to her. And she's clearly having a meltdown. Um, and so it, it teaches our kids how to be those people when they're presented yeah. with those scenarios. But for me, the self-regulatory part is that I really want my uh-huh. kids to understand that not everybody, police particularly, and we have these conversations with regard to people who are positioned in our society in authoritarian roles, right? Police, sometimes teachers, don't care about what you need at that moment. How do you continue and how do you regulate? How do you recognize what's happening in your system, right? How do you, for my 10-year-old, how do you, so that I know if I have to go to school and I'm going to bat and I will go to bat for you, how do you make it known that you are not okay, right? You're not consenting. Yeah. You need to make that known and then I can jump in too and 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 really, you know, fight for it, right? But you, you bring up a really key point and that is you have to figure out how to survive in the systems you're in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, go ahead, I Angela. Like, but I want to come back to yeah. that. Go ahead, Ange. Yeah, that's and that's kind of what I was keying on. And maybe the language that is kind of um, more clarifying instead of control, which I I get is, you know, again, feeling like, you know, we're policing. It's the self-regulatory. And that's really what I meant. um, Oh, yeah. I think that that helps a lot. Yeah. Right. How like when we're when we're practicing or we're thinking of restorative justice or we're thinking of how how to effectively parent our children into healthy, functioning, responsible adults in this society, um, 
you know, we, they need to have skills because when they, when they get out there, you know, you don't, you don't want them to be like, I need somebody who's going to discipline me harshly. Right. And we also know as, you know, parenting children with either a mental health issue and, or, um, you know, black, brown, gay, indigenous children is their safety out there in the world. And that self-regulatory ability is, is imperative. And, you know, there's definitely going to have to be some discussion in there about, you know, like, you know, what works and what doesn't in, in teaching our children how to self-regulate, how to set personal boundaries, um, you know, how to resolve conflicts. And, and also like all of that is, is, is life skills. It's about how to have interpersonal relationships. You know, one day when they start dating, friendships, coworkers, it, all, all of those sorts of things. And even for, for neural, go ahead, Deanne, sorry. Even for neurotypical kids, right? The, the self-regulation mm-hmm. and, and that's what I meant by teaching our kids to both be empathetic and, and caring mm. administers or administers not a great word. Um, but, but participants in the system, right? So teaching them. Yeah. And that's the other thing that I, I try to teach my kids is that you don't have to respond to somebody else's dysregulation is not <laughs> the time yes. for you to respond and top it, right? So this person and, and, you know, I have four kids. So there's fights, there's the, and there, you know, arguments. <laughs> and so someone else having a meltdown is not your, your permission all of a sudden now to sort of engage and, 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 you know, top them with your own meltdown and start yelling. And so it's like two people yelling at each other in the middle of a meltdown for one person because the person who's having a meltdown said that they're a jerk and I'm not a jerk. You're being a jerk. And, you know, this kind of one-upping is not helpful. So I think it's also about yeah. teaching our neurotypical kids, neuroatypical kids about being the people in the system that we want them to be. But it's more importantly, in terms of the self-regulation aspect of it, it is not teaching self-regulation. And, and this is the next question that I had and I want to answer to. It's not permissiveness. It's not neglectfulness. You're not neglecting mm. the behaviors um, that people have, even when they're not regulated. It's not like, oh, OK, well, you know, he's unregulated and we're just going to neglect all of it. It's not it, it's leaning in, like you said, Tammy, being curious. But it's also a process of of teaching people how to discuss and then how to restore. How do you make amends after you have lost it, right? And mm-hmm. and you broke Absolutely. your sister's favorite toy. You still have Absolutely. to walk through this with her. There, there are a few things actually in, in just this recent conversation. I mean, one is, um, this issue of self, um, control, self-regulation. Um, if we're talking about it from the level of what schools need to do, like how to make the system better for kids, right? I think it's really important to focus on self-regulation as opposed to self-control because one of the issues that we end up with as parents, and I see a lot, it's particularly true in the Tourette's community. Um, it happens in the bipolar community, but it happens in other, with some other disabilities as well. Um, is a child can learn to control a symptom while they're in school, but Mm. if they're just controlling that symptom, they come home and then they blow up for the rest of the day. Like, yeah. so it's not really yeah. regulating it. It's holding it in. But like Dion's saying, if you live in oppressive systems, and, and we do, you have to learn how to do that so you don't get shot. Okay. So you see what I'm saying? Like, so, right. so that is right. the reality of it. Now there's this other piece, um, mm. To, to, to that as well, which is what do you do with the child who needs to learn to self-control and or self-regulate depending on the systems they live in? And as you're talking, Deanne, and, and I know it's not getting right to permissiveness. I want to get to that too. But 
This is where privilege comes up. And I had the privilege as a white, middle-class, financially stable person to pull my child out of school when it was clear the level of their disability was at such a point they didn't have the self-control needed by that system and they were going to suffer uh, to such an extent it it was not a learning environment and it would have just launched him into an extremely punitive lifelong system. So, but I had the privilege to pull him out of it because there was no way for years we tried teaching the self-regulation and self-control. His disability got to the point that wasn't possible. What I'm really worried about are the black and brown children who have severe mental illness. And, and don't have that kind of financial privilege to pull the child out of school, right? Um, or even the financial privilege to the, pull your child out of an sort of authoritarian, stigmatizing environment. Um, you know, the alternative mm-hmm. schools that they um, put a lot of, of black and brown children in um, still replicate this model, right? The, the discipline Exactly. Model. <laughs> no, you know, go ahead. And then I want to get back to your permissiveness real quick and then, then hear what Ooh. you guys have to say about it. Because the other issue is I think of like, again, I, I'll use a lot of examples from Tourette's because that's our lived experience. But, you know, my son has had some tics that when he was little were not an issue. Like he had a squeezing tick and he would need to squeeze someone's arm. And when he was little, that was fine. And the teachers let him do it and I let him do it. But he got bigger and you guys know my son, he's, he's man mm-hmm. size. You know, he's almost a man, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, but, but he's been a large guy, a strong guy for a while now. And we had to say, you can't do that because you will literally bruise if not break a bone. to get the attention out that you need to get out. Now you can't help it. You need to do it. But someone else also needs not to be physically assaulted. So you just can't do it. Right. And that is an issue of self-control as opposed to self-regulation. Right. right? Like you you just have to try to find something else that's good enough and nothing feels like that, but you have, you can't, you have to just leave the situation because you can't do that squeezing. You just can't. Right. Right. So I don't know, but, but to me, like it's not permissive. You're not saying they can do it, but you recognize this is a neurological issue. They need a certain sensation but it's it's off the table because it harms someone else. Yeah, and I, I that's yeah. where because I I want to ask where also in this kind of punitive and you know pick up wherever you want to pick up on on the question. But it's two questions, right? One is this false dichotomy between punitive um, versus permissive, right? Um, and punitive versus neglectful, like complete neglect. I'm just we're just not going to pay attention to it. And we're not even going to attend to the, the behavior. We're not going to try to get them help. We've been told um, that, you know, the child has this kind of problem, whatever. Um, and, and this has been, I think, in a lot of ways, um, particularly at schools, where uh, a lot of us in the disability rights community have really pushed back. We don't want our children neglected, right? We don't want our children put into mm-hmm. a corner and nobody paying attention to them. Um, and what we're talking about right now in this conversation is not complete permissiveness, um, that we just kind of allow the behaviors. We're not neglecting it or ignoring, but we're like, yeah, you know, what it, it like you said, with the with squeezing of the arm, certain amounts of like my child likes to he's like, I always feel like I need to break something. And it's like, well, you can't break furniture. You can't go around breaking things um, as your release, like the snaps. Like, so, you know, what are you ripping paper for some reason really helps them. So you can do this, but I'm not it's not permissive and I'm not permitting you to go in and 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 break things. Your stuff my stuff or anybody's stuff. It's a no, right? Um and so the 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 continuum between that is is one question. And then I guess the other question that I have is when did you know, I mean, that this wasn't working? Um so if either one of you want to pick up when you knew um mm. this model wasn't working that... for your child. Well you know, I have an 11 year age difference between my kids. So there were some things that I kind of already knew coming into parenting my daughter. But of course, 
parenting her, I had to learn a whole new set of skills because no two children are the same. And neither of them come with instruction manuals on how to how to do these things. So I'll like use my my son as an as an example, because I I learned it when he was little. Um, he he does not respond. I mean, if you if you do this sort of the punitive things that we think of in parenting, right? And the harder that you push on him to conform, the harder he pushes back, right? Mm -hmm. And so I wasn't getting anywhere with him. It was just problematic. And, you know, and I also grew up in a very punitive household. So even coming into parenting, there were things I was like, I do not want to, I'm not doing that to my kid kind of thing, right? right? And and I think lots of parents go through that. Um, and so instead of doing the authoritarian thing, um, I uh, uh, chose sort of like the middle road. It wasn't either permissive and it wasn't, you know, this this attempt to exert all of this control on him. It was more it was collaborative in the sense of I was really trying to listen to what he needed in, in age appropriate ways and in, in, in the ways that, you know, we understand the um, cognitive development of a child at different stages mm-hmm. and, 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 and parenting as a guide and thinking that I want my child to grow up into this independent thinking, self-regulatory, compassionate, understanding strong human being who's going to go on and be able to be successful within his own definition of that and have healthy relationships and things like that. So, you know, it just, it, it wasn't working and I was a single parent and I just really needed something that was going to work and, and, and brought down sort of the tension, um, that, you know, exists in all of parenting. So that's kind of where I first learned it. Um, And I just want to touch on two things that I was thinking of as you guys were talking. And it ties back into how we um, think about children's mental health justice. We talk about children's mental health justice um, being, you know, restorative and holistic. And when you guys were talking about self-regulatory versus self-control, Self-regulatory for me is the healthy, holistic way of um, parenting a child, of raising a child, where the self-control, too much of the self-control anyways, seems to be more like the unhealthy way. You know, your your child is holding it in when they're at school. You're holding and then it they, in. You know, they burst out. Yes, I'm holding it in until there's some place where I'm like, oh, crap. Like, you know, I can I can just sort of let it out. And, you know, that's not healthy for anybody. But when you're learning in a situation of stress, like, oh, my God, I, 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 I can I can relax with this and um, and figure it out in the moment. And it's much less stressful. So that was what was going on in my brain. What about you, Tammy? Well, I think the distinction made is really helpful. And, and now I'm going to start thinking of it this way. Like self-control is like holding your breath. Eventually you have to let it out. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> Whereas yes. self-regulation yeah. is recognizing you are a system and something's askew. And how do you balance that system out? You know, yes. and, you know, yes. we do this. Like if you're in pain, I mean, think about it. You know, if you're in pain, we adjust. Like maybe you, you know, shift your weight to get the pain off that part. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, yeah. Um, and, and that's different than just <gasps> holding it in and just denying yeah. it until you can deal with it. And then you're not really dealing with it. You're just sort of exploding. Right. And right. and so I think whether you're thinking of yourself as an organism, as a system or the classroom or the family as a system, if we're all just trying to like ignore something and just then then it's like holding your breath. It's going to blow yeah. up in your face. Um, yes. So it's, the permissiveness is not what we're talking about, which is, oh, just do whatever. It's fine. And then we all blow up, right. you know, when it just gets to us. Um, but rather, um, 
again, I just can't stress enough going back to what you said last episode, Angela, it's about needs. What are the needs and how do we meet those needs in the system given what's available? But why that's going back to what Dion said is there's the reality that we don't all, we don't live in systems that care about everyone's needs. Well, I, I think, yeah. For me, in the distinction that, because as you were talking, I was thinking, how do I make these distinctions for my kids? There are are times that you have to just absolutely operate and use self-control. You have no choice. That's right. That's right. Clamp it down. You need to do whatever. Clench your butt cheeks. Chew on your jaw. But you've (laughs) got to, you know enact some sort of self-control and then once you're outside of whatever the danger is or whatever's happening then you know and we've all done that too we've been in a very stressful situation as soon as we are outside of it we burst into tears we do we melt down or whatever and meltdowns will happen and and that's the other thing that for me the change in my parenting in trying to have this sort of dynamic way of parenting both my children internally in our household and in our family environment and setting up for them what they need or what they, what I aspire for them in their internal kind of equilibrium system, but also recognizing the external environments that we all live in, particularly as a black family and as black people, what we live in is to make the distinctions between what you're talking about, self-control when I am just, I'm, I'm white knuckling, holding on and getting to a safe space in which then I can kind of let all that toxicity out of my system. Because as you were talking to me, I think one of the things that we need to highlight is that type of self-control, that type of white knuckling. When you're talking about a child with Tourette's holding it in all day at school, they're, they're white knuckling it. And like you said, if you're holding your mm. breath, you're going to have to 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 um, breathe. And I think you used at one point in time in our conversation the um, analogy of holding a balloon right under water, like the pressure, and it's going to poof. Yeah, it's going yeah. to pop out. And so advocating and and really working with my children, particularly when finding safe spaces for them to let all of that toxicity out of their system and to lose control is is important but also to have the conversation about self self-regulation right and and where you can do that and sometimes they're going to believe it's not a, a strict dichotomy between one or the other um they're definitely interrelated but making those distinctions for them so that they can start to be better stewards of not only their own behaviors, right, but really their own feelings, because self-control and that whole self-control language, what was always problematic for me is it does not teach you to really be in tune with why something is happening and, 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 and what that means. And from the standpoint of disruption and and I'm talking about in terms of racism and racist practices in institutions. And it's from the standpoint of a black person to be able to disrupt, to effectively engage and not have racist toxicity and racist institutions totally change the way in which I think about myself. I have to really understand how these systems are not meeting my needs, right? I have to understand that sometimes it is what's going on systematically or systemically, and it's not me. And I'm having these feelings, but why I'm having these feelings. And that is part of what, for me as a parent, moved me to looking towards other models, more collaborative models, um, more problem-solving models, and more skills-based models of parenting and away from the, you do it. I said it, you do it, you move. And by the way, don't cry about it. Um, model of parenting. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of the things, and just listening to your talk, it goes back to our last conversation when I, I was speaking about in movement spaces, we're seeing more and more what I would call relational ontology, right? Recognizing we are in systems with each other and um, we need to, 
develop our systems and structures to reach equilibrium that meet everyone's needs as opposed to this kind of coercive, punitive models, right? And one of the things that we're seeing, and we know both, um, you know, the, we know racism causes long-term health effects, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and that constant need to white, white knuckle it, um, because the, 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 the white supremacy, right? That is causing all the situations in which an African American or even other persons of color have to just self control in that moment. So they're not shot. They're not harmed. They're not arrested for something that's ridiculous, right? Um, You're not fired. Yes. You're not fired or you're not excluded from the table. Right. Yeah. Right. Whether that's the school district or whatever. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, so part of thinking about justice is thinking about how do we frame our system so that we're not putting part of our system in that kind of toxic stress all the time because it's not good for the overall right. system. Right. Well, but um, that means gonna- considering those people part of the system. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's part of the problem we have with white supremacy. Go ahead, Ange. In my in my final thoughts, I just kind of wanted to um, wrap it up with what I think we're we're shooting at. Right. That this this restorative model. And I've been listening to a lot of Pema children lately. So (laughs) so I'm thinking in sort of very Buddhist kind of ways, but that the restorative model is the middle path. Right. Uh, The middle road where we're we're looking to find solutions we're we're um you know giving people and children and systems tools in how to find the solutions but we're ultimately trying to create balance right and permissiveness and authoritarianness are you know sort of the opposite ends of the pendulum and they aren't balanced and it's really showing that that lack of balance is very bad for everybody in the system Um, So I want to just say thank you, ladies, uh, for having this conversation, and I look forward to our next one. Thank you for listening to Mothers on the Frontline, copyrighted in 2020. The music is Old English, written and performed by Flame Emoji. For more podcasts related to children's mental health justice, go to mothersonthefrontline.com or subscribe to Mothers on the Frontline on iTunes, Android, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, please make a tax-deductible donation on our website.